Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. Paul Stevenson is with us today. He is a historian and author of many books, including Constantine, Roman Emperor, Christian Victor, and The Serpent Column, a cultural biography. His new book is New Rome, The Empire in the East, our topic today. Uh, Welcome, sir. Thank you. Okay, well, first of all, you focus on the years. Let's identify 395 to 700. What do those years constitute in big terms in standard histories of the West? Well, 395 is typically chosen by um, historians and others who wish to differentiate the Roman world from what comes afterwards, because that's the year in which formerly the empire was allegedly separated between an Eastern Empire and a Western Empire. Um, Fundamentally, that's true. Um, Institutionally, it's... um, not uh, accurate, but it does uh, it, it does lead from 395 to 700. It, it does amount to a difference between a Western Empire, which, as everybody knows, is assaulted by Goths and others and enters a different phase of transformation to the Eastern Empire, uh, which subsequently is known as Byzantium. And I, in this book, call um, the Eastern Roman Empire and occasionally Byzantium uh, as it is, uh, is it, as it becomes transformed. I am a Byzantinist, and I have, unlike many of uh, those in my profession, I have no problem with using the term Byzantium to differentiate um, the Christian Roman world of the Middle Ages from uh, the later Roman Empire. But in this book, I was really thinking about late antiquity and that transitional period before Byzantium proper starts. Yeah. You refer to uh, this as, or early on in the book, you, you refer to the end of the lead age, L-E-A-D. What do you mean by that? Well, the Roman world is what I would call the lead age. I'm not the person who coined that phrase, but uh, I read a lot of archaeology in preparing to write this book. And indeed, I began my career, um, my teenage years as a Roman archaeologist digging in sites in Britain. So it was fascinating for me as a Byzantinist to return to this world and to see uh, what a change since I was a teenager, so 35 years ago. And uh, it was absolutely compelling to see what had been discovered about pollution in the Roman world and into the later Roman world, to such an extent that one could call it a lead age, an age where, uh, an age where the, the Earth's surface was permeated by so much lead that had been pumped into the atmosphere from the smelting of, of metals in the Roman world, that it's visible in peat bogs and ice cores and, uh, and, and streams and mountain lakes. Uh, throughout Eastern Europe and throughout Western Europe, but as far north as Greenland and Iceland, the Faroe Islands, where one can see the evidence of pollution that was produced in the Mediterranean world, principally in Spain. I, I have to say that that was a fascinating discussion in, in the book, where you 
do go into the, the, the presence of lead everywhere in, in, in the air, in, 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 you know, in, in construction, in the soil, and, and how extensive it was. And, and it shows all the erudition, really. Uh, I point out to our listeners, an extraordinary amount of erudition goes into this book. It's almost encyclopedic in its coverage of, of these years uh, across the, in the Eastern Mediterranean. Let me ask, uh, what did lead in the environment do to people? What was the impact? It's very hard to say definitively because we're working with, of course, with bones rather than bodies. And therefore we can't see directly what effect it had on people's behavior and on their brains and uh, it, it, on our soft tissues, because these are the, the, the places where one typically finds um, the, the, the direct results of lead pollution, lead poisoning in, in humans. But um, one of the things that I think is fairly convincing is that the population, let's say of Roman Britain, where a huge amount of lead was produced after uh, Britannia became part of the Roman Empire, a huge amount of lead was produced and smelted and then shipped off uh, to the Mediterranean. And in the Neolithic period, um, in uh, Britain and in the Anglo-Saxon period in Britain, people are taller. Now, this wouldn't normally be the case because in the Roman era, people started to eat more proteins. And so one would expect them, therefore, to grow taller. But in fact, the opposite is the case in that the, the, the uh, native population of Roman Britain and the Romans themselves seem to be two to three centimeters, so an inch to two inches shorter than those who came before and those who would come afterwards. And this hasn't been explained and one of the explanations one can give, therefore, is the, the massive pollution by lead, because the presence of lead in the, in the, the amount that we see in the soil uh, in Roman Britain could account for this uh, stunting of growth, because it's well known today, of course, that uh, any amount of lead um, can uh, alter the, the, the uh, it can change puberty and it can lead to uh, the, the, the stunting of growth in children and therefore to shorter adult populations. Yeah, yeah. And there was no suspicion at the time that this 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 was a cause of, of of suffering and poor health and weakness and lower cognitive capacity. No no sense that anyone realized this. I don't believe they had a sense of lower cognitive capacity, but I do think that they understood that lead was unhealthy. Um, this is clear from the fact that major uh, population sites were not located very close to smelting facilities. It's yeah. evident in the fact that for a very long period in the Roman world, although not in Byzantium and the later Roman world, a lot of the activities relating to heavy metal uh, smelting and production were undertaken by slaves. And mining communities lived very hard lives, which was well known. Um, and there are authors who mention uh, the, the, the toxic effects of lead. But these are the same authors who also prescribe lead in medicinal areas. Um, and so I think that there was, it, it's rather like slavery in the Roman world. It was widely understood to be uh, a bad thing. Uh, but it was also so much part of the world that nobody really had uh, any inclination to change it. Um, other than, of course, those who were being poisoned, or in the case of slaves, those, were who, those who were enslaved. Um, and in many cases, the enslaved were those who were working with heavy metals, as I just said. So um, I think that the Romans did understand that lead um, could be bad for you. But they also thought, strangely, that it could be good for you. Um, and it was prescribed medicinally. It was used in uh, in food production. It was used in saucepans and things that were that were used on every day on an everyday basis. It was just so convenient and so abundant 
that they couldn't get over it, rather like us with plastic. I think we all understand now that plastic is polluting the, our environment and to some extent destroying the natural world. And yet it's been a very long and slow process for us to realize that we could do something about that. Yeah, yeah. You, you mentioned the, the slavery issue. Another thing you say after uh, the, the, the lead uh, descriptions, that at the end of the fourth century, one of the transitions that we have here is that Rome ceased to be a slave society. Not, not, not that slavery ended, but it wasn't a slave society anymore. What, what, what happened there? I think over time, the sources of slaves, uh, to a large extent, dried up. I mean, obviously, the, the, one of the greatest, um, uh, the principal means of acquiring new slave labor was, of course, warfare. And so bringing in people through successful warfare, uh, something that the Romans did, uh, a great deal. Slaves are also very expensive, um, so the richer uh, members of society might own slaves in abundance, but equally uh, the work that slaves could do on their farms could also be done by uh, tenants uh, who would, who lived lives that were not very much better than slaves in many ways, um, but they were not technically enslaved people. So if one looks at Egypt, for example, as I do in the book in, in, in some detail at the beginning, you see that there are many people who live uh, a kind of uh, semi-enslaved life as um, indentured farmers who uh, owe rent on the lands they're unable to give up. And the only way really to give up these lands is to become enslaved and to work in, in the same fields but no longer have any uh, control over those fields. And so um, there is a, 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 a slim line between being enslaved and, and having an absolutely terrible life in the, in the later Roman model. And I think a lot of people did have absolutely awful lives. And, and this is reflected in the physical remains that one finds. Um, but in other ways, there were, of course, Christian thinkers who were observing that slavery was not a natural condition. It was wrong. Uh, now, people like John Chrysostom, uh, John Chrysostomus, uh, had very strong opinions about this, but didn't do a great deal about it practically, because it was, of course, almost impossible practically to do anything about this other than personally to not own slaves. One couldn't change society so radically, it seems, despite best intentions. And this, therefore, was a process which, over time, led to fewer slaves. And the distinction between a slave society and one where there are slaves is um, perhaps one of, of scale, but the principal means of production in the high Roman Empire uh, was through slave labor. Um, and in the later Roman Empire and in Byzantium, there were many slaves, but society functioned adequately without slaves. And so it would be rather like the transition between types of, of course, slavery is, is the production of energy in the ancient world and other forms of energy come online, perhaps, uh, such that um, slavery is less necessary, but also there are fewer massive major building projects uh, in the, the later world as well, which require the, the mobilization of huge gangs of slaves, other than perhaps the construction of such buildings as Hagia Sophia, which I talk about in, in the book. Yes, yes. You, you, you turn to another figure that might surprise some people as a very telling or important or, or indicative figure at this time in, in the, uh, going into the, the fifth century, what was the status of the eunuch? Why, why was the eunuch a significant figure? Well, eunuchs um, had, of course, existed in, in, in numbers in, in the late Roman world, and they'd exist, existed in other um, societies in the Near Eastern Mediterranean world for hundreds and thousands of years. And they had key roles to play in that they were 
transi transitional figures. They were no, uh, they, they were not considered to be women, but they were also not considered to be wholly men. And for the most part, um, becoming a eunuch was a choice that the parents of a child made in order to give that child an opportunity or an advantage over others who were not eunuchs, because a certain number of roles, ranks, and, and offices in the Roman administration were reserved for those who were eunuchs. And so to have the role of Grand Chamberlain, for example, who was the closest person, uh, the personal attendant to an emperor, uh, you would have to be a eunuch. And that role was always held by eunuchs. And there were very few roles that were uh, not available to eunuchs, but there were a good number of good uh, offices and, and, and ranks that were only available to eunuchs. And so in many cases, this was a choice that was made. Now, be becoming a eunuch was also uh, a punishment. So for, on the other side of that, um, if one had grown to adulthood, uh, for example, um, then being made a eunuch was something that could be used to eliminate one as a threat to power. One couldn't become emperor uh, if a eunuch, and therefore uh, people within the uh, imperial family or those who were a threat to the person of the emperor might become eunuchs and be castrated later in life. Uh, it could also be the case that children were castrated uh, in order to prevent them from becoming a threat later in life. And this was considered, of course, to be um, a, a, an act of charity. Rather than killing somebody, one could castrate them and therefore open up other offices and roles to them, but at the same time eliminate them as a threat to the person of the emperor or to the uh, the emperor's chosen successor, typically his son or, or some of his sons. You speak of the empire as an empire of cities. In this age, you know, without telephones and, and automobiles, how did Rome, this, this central authority, how did it control and coordinate all these faraway places? Was this, was this one of the problems that made it vulnerable to, to its fall? Uh, yes and no. Uh, I would say that that's absolutely right, that Rome was an empire of cities, but more particularly, it was an empire of connected cities. And so, yes, there were no telephones, but there were roads and they were very well maintained roads. And the, uh, the network that connected the cities was very, very effective at bringing ideas and goods from one end of the Roman world to the other very rapidly. And so we can see that messages could traverse the empire very quickly. But with those messages, of course, came other things that were less uh, appealing, pathogens that could travel very quickly uh, between cities and, and hit vulnerable populations. So the, the bubonic plague emerges, as, as, as is clear in the book. This is, if, if I may interrupt, that was another fascinating episode. The, 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 you never hear about the bubonic plague in, in, the, in the fifth or sixth centuries. It's always, you know, the Black Death. Yeah. I didn't know that the... the I confess my ignorance here, but this was huge, yes? It was, and it's also a huge area of controversy right now. I mean, this began before our recent pandemic episode, and so it's something that has fascinated people, and it's allowed a lot of my colleagues um, to enter into a, a different world of discussion, thinking about responses to endemic disease, because it's clear that the bubonic plague became an endemic disease in the later Roman world, and that it flared up very frequently. This, people typically have called this waves of plague. Why did waves of plague come back every 15 years or so, coinciding with um, the tax cycle, which went in every 15 years? People pay taxes every year, but it, it changed over every 15 years to a new what they called indictional cycle. And it seemed that waves of plague hit the empire every 15 to 17 years. 
but it was unrelated to tax, of course. It was related very closely to the regeneration of populations without immunity. So as children grew up not having been in contact with those who had plague or not having contracted plague and recovered from it, then what inelegantly has been called, but whenever we're familiar with herd immunity was established, um, once herd immunity waned and new populations entered cities and younger populations came of age, then once more that population was vulnerable to the re-emergence of a slightly mutated pathogen, a variant of the bubonic plague. And this seemed to have happened over a period of 250 to 300 years from around 542, 541, 42, and it's first detected in Egypt, probably coming out of the Great Lakes in Central Africa, although that's an argument that people are still having, and then erupts into uh, Constantinople itself in 542 and is found as far north as Cambridgeshire in Britain uh, very soon after that. It, it moves incredibly rapidly, so, so rapid indeed that we can't really understand how, given the way that more recent waves of bubonic plague have been tracked and monitored. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you were looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. At what point was Constantinople the dominant city in, in this empire of cities? It became a principal city very quickly after its foundation in 330. So by 395, when my book begins in earnest, um, Constantinople was a center of government, although it wasn't conceived as a replacement for Rome itself. Um, it was more of a competitor, as I argue, to Alexandria and Antioch, the two great Christian, Christian capitals of the East, uh, where uh, Syriac and Coptic um, orthodoxy uh, were the dominant forces in society. Um, Alexandria was a great literary center, as was Antioch. Uh, Antioch was famous for so many things that one wouldn't imagine it could be today, as it sits, of course, on the borders between Syria and Turkey as a small uh, uh, city called Antakya. But in the ancient world, it was one of the most uh, magnificent cities that one could imagine, and certainly the eastern capital. Alexandria sent forth the grain fleet every year to Rome itself and later to Constantinople and was full of uh, deviant thinkers and temples and, of course, connected the European and Mediterranean world to the African and Middle Eastern world beyond. So these were great thriving centers that uh, really uh, could look at this upstart city in Thrace, as they called it, Constantinople, as nothing. It's just a, as an arriviste of, of sorts that they didn't really have to worry about until suddenly they did when emperors began to base themselves principally in that city. And that really is something that happens uh, from Theodosius I onwards. So from around 395 onwards, emperors are based principally in Constantinople from that time rather than moving around to different cities. And so it's as the center of government that Constantinople begins to bludgeon others into submission, making them send their taxes to Constantinople, but also sending out countless letters and agents uh, using this amazing network of roads to the connected cities. Uh, and everyone had to reply. People would send back messages and ambassadors to the center, bringing 
what they needed to say to an emperor who would give a response and send it back. So law in the Roman world was made by edict, which was effectively a response to a question that someone would send to the emperor. And in order to respond, someone had to come to the emperor and to the imperial court with a letter and then not just read the letter, but stay and expound upon the letter and advocate for uh, what was being requested and then await a response and take that response back. And it's in this way that the city of Constantinople becomes absolutely central to the way that the empire functioned. You, you also note that it was an intellectual hotbed, place where uh, religious debate, controversy, discussion, scholarship, research would take place. For instance, one, one episode that you document here is the debates over the nature of the person of Jesus. Was Constantinople, was Constantinople uh, understood as you know, one, of the, one of the hot centers of thought at the time? It was because it was such a concentration of intellectuals and thinkers and educated people. So wherever the educated gathered, then theology was discussed. Theology, of course, was absolutely central to uh, the understanding of the later Roman world and how one conceived of divinity, how one conceived of the relationship between uh, the, uh, the Godhead and, and, and the Trinity was absolutely fundamental to one's identity and to one belonging to a particular community. And so it was really at this time that Constantinople emerges as, if not a threat, then a major player in the discussions that are taking place in the Eastern Empire. And it's more Western looking in its outlook than Antioch and, and Alexandria. And it's really therefore the, with the emergence of the Arian uh, debate in the reign of Constantine that one finds this flaring up and it flares up uh, therefore every few years. And it, it, it really is part of forging uh, a Chalcedonian identity, an identity based on the uh, premises of the Council of Chalcedon when Constantinople and the Church of Constantinople uh, defines its identity at the beginning of the fifth century. And it's really, I argue, in the, in the reign of Justinian uh, that the, uh, the Christian identity of Constantinople comes to the fore in the Eastern Roman world to the detriment of those in um, both Alexandria and Antioch. And of course, Justinian is quite famous for uh, persecuting uh, monophysites or miaphysites, those who, which was the principal form of belief in the majority of the uh, the churches in Syria and 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 uh, the Middle East to this point. You talk about Justinian as a, a debated figure, uh, the status of, of him. I mean, was he was he a great leader, firm in faith, or was he was he sort of a weak cuckold to 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 his wife with no heir? Uh, wh where do you where do you come down? On, on Justinian? Good or bad, strong or weak, smart or stupid? He certainly wasn't stupid, um, yes. I mean, he, he clearly, I mean, to, to remain in power for so long and to uh, dominate the city and the empire in the manner that he did, he would, had to be extremely clever, but perhaps clever in the way that one understand or understood Vladimir Putin to be until quite recently, which mm -hmm. is, you know, surrounding himself with like-minded um, men of equal um, ruthlessness and cruelty um, uh, who would all benefit from the riches of the empire and not really, uh, and so long as, of course, there was agreement there, then uh, they could run things their own way. And I, I, I do believe that Justinian, for example, launched foreign wars to shore himself up domestically, for example. I do, I mean, the, the, the attack on North Africa was clearly something that proved to him very quickly 
that um, capturing uh, something that had been dominated by barbarians could be done easily in the same way, of course, that in 2014, Putin, without getting too political, I mean, I don't think that there are many Putin supporters listening to your podcast, I'm sure, um, that, uh, that you could capture Crimea quickly and then hold out the idea that perhaps Ukraine is next. And this is what Justinian did. He captured North Africa very quickly um, in the 530s. Um, and uh, Belisarius, his general, did such a good job that he be became a major threat to Justinian. And on the back of this, determined that Italy itself could be captured just as easily. And when that proved to be intractable, um, the, and the war dragged on for years, and everybody uh, found it to be appalling, uh, then they doubled down and, of course, um, created a peace with, with Persia, but at the same time um, determined to, to starve the war effort of, of money, but just let people, uh, effectively to let the Italians fund uh, the war itself by plunder. And so this was a great, so rather than liberating the, um, the, the, the original Rome and the Italian people uh, from the Goths, what really happened was that Justinian uh, ran Italy into the ground forcing it to, to um, effectively finance its own recovery, but actually its occupation by his own troops who were not doing the locals very much good at all. Hmm. What was the Nika riot of year 532? This was one of the, in many ways, it was absolutely typical of the way that the Roman world worked, which is that riots were standard in the cities. They were a safety valve of sorts. People expected riots to take place. They expected cities... Um, to, to have marauding mobs explode and then calm down. And typically they would be put down by force, the ringleaders would be arrested, and um, uh, the government would crack down. Um, it wasn't typical for people to seek to replace the emperor, although that had happened on occasions and almost successfully in the reign of Anastasius. The thing that happened uh, after with the Nicaragua of 532, is that initially Justinian bowed to the wishes of the mob by removing uh, his uh, principal officers as they demanded, um, and then turned on them and sent his troops to slaughter 30,000 of them in the Hippodrome as they marched on him and sought to uh, replace him with one of his nephews. And so effectively it demonstrated again his tyranny. Uh, but also his ruthlessness, that the fact that he was willing to kill that many of his own citizens to keep himself in power, um, and did so successfully, of course, because he reigned then for another 32, 33 years, but thereafter uh, was engaged in a series of foreign conflicts in many ways to shore up the domestic position that he destroyed for himself by killing so many of his citizens. People understood he was ruthless, but one has to therefore imagine that he was also immensely unpopular and could rule through demonstrating, if you kill 30,000 people, you've killed the fathers and sons of a lot of people who remain behind um, and will be there throughout the rest of your reign and you will be constantly considered to have been a murderer and a tyrant. And this is what Procopius, the great writer of the period, and also uh, Justinian's uh, hagiographer, biographer, uh, calls him, calls him a tyrant. Let me, let me ask you about a form of evidence that is very important for learning about this time. Why or how do coins found at sites tell us so much, so much about this, this bygone society? Coins are fascinating for a number of reasons, but they, they give us a, a lot of information on um, what they, they give us the ideolo ideological messages that people are wishing to pump out. Of course, they show us the pictures that emperors are putting, are putting of themselves on the coins. 
um, and they show us who they wish to associate with them in power, for example, their sons. They show us changes in um, ideology, changes in ideas. So at the end of the period under consideration, uh, suddenly Islam is ascendant and they start minting their own coins. And the initial Islamic coins that are put out uh, have images of rulers on them. They have living people on the coins. And then around 695, uh, human figures and all living creatures disappear from Islamic coins and haven't been back since because, of course, uh, Islam uh, becomes a strictly aniconic uh, religion at that point. And so it can tell you a lot about how one wishes to project an imperial image. But they also provide a huge amount of information on a much more mundane level about how much money is in circulation. So um, who is in control of which areas, whether the army is present in an area at a particular time because military wages are paid in coin, um, the number of gold and silver coins that one finds in excavations is always small, but the number relative to other times tells you the abundance of gold and silver that's in the treasury at a time. Uh, it can give you very clear indications of um, zones of influence because you don't find very many coins minted in Carthage, for example, in North Africa, in the vicinity of Constantinople and vice versa. So even though Carthage is very much part of the Roman world, and one would imagine that coins would circulate freely with uh, large scale international trade, Nonetheless, it's clear that regional mints reflect the regional dominance of the great cities as well. And even though money is pumped into circulation in great numbers, much more is pumped in from Constantinople itself than anywhere else. Money tends to circulate in zones rather than freely across the, the whole Roman world. So there's a huge amount that one can learn from the discovery of coins in small contexts as well. The end of a site can be very clearly indicated by the sudden disappearance of coins of emperors after that period. So we can see in many of the, the cities of the late Roman world across the East, the arrival of the Persians and then the arrival of the Arabs and Islam becoming dominant was the ending of the circulation of small value Roman coins minted in copper, previously found in, in their tens of thousands and then found in very few numbers and then found not at all for tens or hundreds of years. So it gives us huge amounts of different information. Yeah. You also discuss something called pollen evidence. What is that and what does it tell us? It tells us a great deal about how heavily cultivated uh, the Roman world was at particular times and what was being cultivated. And so again, we can see the end of the Roman world in the East and the arrival of Islam, we can see very clearly in the coverage of certain crops. Uh, now, not all crops have pollen that is windblown, and so therefore you can find it in the, um, in the stratigraphy in the, in the levels of lake beds where one would find this evidence. Some is was carried by bees and other things, so you can't tell uh, that type of vegetation very well. But for the, in, in the, within those limitations, one can see very clearly, for example, how olive cultivation ends in areas where it had been dominant for two, three hundred years in the period leading up to the year 700. And this happens gradually, but it also happens very suddenly in certain places. And the only genuine explanation for this uh, has to be the arrival of a Persian army or subsequently the arrival of, a, of a, an Arab army ending cultivation. Because if one is to plant fruit trees or olive trees, for example, um, which take up to 20 to 30 years to produce uh, a, an optimal crop, then one has to have faith in the endurance of society. One has to think that I'm going to be here in 20 or 30 years time or my children are to benefit from this crop. So why would we plant on this land a tree that won't really be uh, fruitful for 20 or 30 years unless we trust the Roman world will endure. And why would we replant 
in this area if, uh, following devastation if we don't believe that to be the case. And so one finds that it really is uh, the, the, the pollen evidence and the, the rewilding of much of the Eastern Empire reflects that lack of faith. It reflects the arrival of new powers, of course, but it also reflects the lack of trust, the lack of faith of individuals who have fled their uh, their farms and their cities and, and haven't returned and haven't recultivated the lands which in the past they had following other devastating invasions or floods or fires or earthquakes or other forms of natural disaster and the plague. There's much, much more in, in this book and it's the kind of thing I would recommend to graduate students working in any of these related fields just to have as almost as a, as a reference work, uh, a readable reference work by by one's desk. The title is New Rome, the Empire in the East. Paul Stevenson, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930. Thank you.